This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of Agree to Disagree. I'm John Donvan. And what makes this edition special is that in addition to our usual one-on-one debate, this program is preceded by an expert interview meant to get us all up to speed on the issue at hand. And today that issue is cyber attacks. When criminals hold computer systems hostage and demand payment to allow them to get back online, does it make sense to pay up? Or does paying up only incentivize more attacks? That's the debate. And it's about to be had by two true cybercrime fighters in their field, Cyber Threat Alliance Chief Executive Michael Daniel and Rapid7 Vice President Jen Ellis. But first, a conversation with David Sanger of The New York Times. He's going to help me set the table for what promises to be an important and especially spirited debate. So let's get to it. David Sanger, you are perhaps the perfect person to help give us the big picture on where we are in the world we call the cyber war today. You're New York Times longtime White House national security and national security correspondent, but you've also focused in with your book, The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age, which is also the inspiration for an HBO documentary that you executive produced and that you appear in and that I understand is now up for an Emmy Award. So congratulations for that. Well, thank you, John, and great to be back with you. So I, I want to ask you my Rip Van Winkle question on this one. So if somebody went to sleep 20 years ago and woke up now and they said, we're bringing in David Sanger to tell you the most important thing going on in the cyber war, what would, what would the update need to be for that now roused from sleep person? Here's what I'd say, John. Around the time that you were falling asleep, Rip, the internet looked like it was just the most fabulous invention for connecting everybody around the world. It looked like it was going to tear down the walls of authoritarian societies because suddenly everybody would be able to go get all the information that they wanted and authoritarians wouldn't be able to control it. It looked like it was going to bring in all kinds of innovations as it did in allowing us to unleash the best elements of capitalism. Without the internet, you wouldn't have had mobile computing. Without mobile computing, you wouldn't have had iPhones. Without iPhones and Androids, you wouldn't have had Uber. That's the good news, Rip. The bad news, Rip, is that while you were asleep, every bad actor, every authoritarian, every dictator who wanted to go figure out how to go use the internet for nefarious purposes, and every criminal who was looking to go make an even faster buck, came up with ways to exploit it. And the most amazing thing is that this was surprising to us because you know what? Ben Franklin invented the post office and we got mail fraud. And Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone and we got wire fraud. So why would it surprise you that when we invented the internet, we got all kinds of bad things happening with all the good. And, and, and Rip is wondering, he heard me say cyber warfare. Are, would you tell Rip that we actually are in the middle of a cyber war already? The war is on? No, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that because um, I think what we're really in, John, is an era of constant escalating cyber conflict that's being conducted at the short of war level, at least so far. Now, why would I say that? Look, no country wants to go right up against the U.S. military, right? The Chinese don't want to do it. The Russians don't want to do it. Certainly Iran and North Korea don't want to do it. But they do want to find ways to bleed the United States and other Western states, to bleed all kinds of adversaries. And cyber is the perfect weapon because it's the perfect short of war weapon. By that, I mean, you can do an attack, but because it is so hard to attribute, 
because it's so easy to dial up and dial down and adjust just what the level of the attack is going to be. So easy to target it and so dirt cheap to conduct that you can probably adjust it to make sure that the response is not that you see some uh, B2s flying over your capital. And that's why, you know, all, for all the talk about a cyber Pearl Harbor, you notice we haven't had one yet. You haven't mm-hmm. seen all the power turned off between Boston and Washington or Seattle and L.A., because people know that if you do that, you're going to get that visit from the B-2s or some cruise missiles. It's going to be an act of war. Well, we, yeah, we did have President Biden saying just recently that the next shooting war is probably going to come as a result of some sort of cyber warfare attack or breach. But you're saying that would have to be a massive you know, traceable uh, act of deliberate act of war and deliberate act of crippling in order to justify that kind of military response on the part of the U.S. That's right. But we've gotten closer to the line lately. Hmm. You know, the um, ransomware attacks that have come on in recent times, and I'm sure we'll be talking some more about those in a bit, have gone after critical infrastructure. So no one was really thinking beforehand that you could try to hold up a company that few heard of named Colonial Pipeline for a few million bucks, and that along the way, it would result in shutting off the flow of gasoline and jet fuel and diesel up and down the East Coast and create gas lines. And that really got people's attention. Same thing when there was an attack on a big meat distributing company that distributes about a quarter of, of all the meat that is circulating around the United States. And so when President Biden met President Putin in Geneva back in June, it was a remarkable summit because it was the first one where debating about the future of nuclear weapons, the two the things that the two superpowers have long held over each other's heads, took sort of back seat to discussing how you were going to control cyber attacks. When we're talking about acts of cyber warfare or acts of conflict around cyber, which of these things are we mostly talking about? Are we talking about, for example, the Chinese using the internet to steal intellectual property? Are we talking about Russia or Iran using the internet or weak points in the uh, IT infrastructure to spy? Are we talking about actually hacking in, as you said, into uh, critical parts of the infrastructure, a power plant. Are we talking about, you know, not, not so much a hack into the system, but hacking the psychology of democracy with the sort of kind of, you know, playing with Facebook and putting stuff out there that we, we as people, in fact, would be hacked as a result of our human nature and, and you know, to become indivisible rather than, uh, to become divisible rather than indivisible. Wh- which of these things are we mostly talking about as threats when we talk about cyber warfare? Or are we talking about all of them? Because these are very, very different kinds of instruments. We're talking about all of the above, as you would suggest. And each one requires a different response and a different way to think about them. So let's go through the categories, and you you did a sort of nice guide and and and, and deal with with each one briefly. So the most common one is using cyber attacks for espionage, right? And you know we learned how to open mail, uh, we uh, learned how to uh, tap telephones. It's no surprise that we figured out how to go use the internet to. Um, be able to do surveillance. And as you suggested, China was the early master at this, stealing intellectual property. They even stole the design for the F-35 fighter. And you look at their uh, stealth fighter, it looks an awful lot like our F-35. And that's not an accident. It's because- Yeah, remarkably, remarkably similar. Remarkably, right? And so- Embarrassingly similar, yeah. Yeah, and that's because they got the designs by going into a U.S. defense contractor and emerging with with all of those. And by the way, they make it cheaper than we do. Um, I find the use of cyber for espionage to be- uh, whilst the most common, in some ways, the least interesting use of cyber. So the next category is using cyber for data manipulation. 
So I get into your systems, John, but I'm not just spying on you. I'm actually altering the data. And that gets pretty scary. Imagine if I could get into a Wall Street firm and alter the data for trading. Imagine if I could get into the Pentagon, I might be able to alter the data for targeting missiles. But I also could do something very subtle, like going into the medical database of all 1.3 million deployed military and change their um, blood types. Imagine the damage you could do over the long term with something like that. Then there's going into a system in order to attack a physical system. And this is what the United States and Israel did together more than a decade ago in what is commonly called the Stuxnet attack, but which was codenamed by the United States Olympic Games. And here what they did was they got into the computer controllers that ran Iran's nuclear centrifuges. Those are the machines that spin at supersonic speeds to produce uh, nuclear fuel. And by speeding them up and slowing them down with a very subtle series of commands that the Iranians didn't see happening, they made those centrifuges blow up and they set back Iran's program. Now, think about this. In a pre-cyber age, you would have had to send in saboteurs or bomb, something that certainly would have resulted in a military response. By doing it with cyber, they were able to do it a lot more subtly. Then there's ransomware, as we've been discussing, largely a criminal act, but you're going in to either lock up somebody's data or steal it and threaten to make it public. And finally, there's the category you mentioned, John, which is basically information warfare. It's propaganda that is fueled by uh, the internet. And in that case, you could be spreading disinformation about Uh, an election system, about a candidate, about the dangers of getting vaccinated. We've seen the Russians and the Chinese get into the business recently of spreading disinformation about uh, the safety of our vaccines. So all of these are areas where people refer to it as an act of cyber war or cyber conflict. But in fact, they're all very different and they all have very different solutions. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. This is a reminder to all of you that Intelligence Squared U.S. is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. We would love your support. Please visit www.intelligencesquaredus.org to learn more. More debate in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared US. I'm John Donvan. Let's get back to our debate. The, the last category I find really, really interesting, the use of propaganda to set us against one another, especially as this was mostly developed. Uh, and I get this from, from your writing. And I, again, from the HBO documentary I just watched again last night, and I recommend it to everybody, that the Russians used Ukraine as a laboratory for a lot of the things they ended up perpetrating on the American public. But I, I was based in Moscow in the, uh, in the early 90s and some of the 80s. And one thing that you never had the sense that they would be particularly good at would be, you know, honest, fact-based political science. But they've done the political science on us. They've done the psychology on us. They've done the sociology on us. They've done the anthropology on us. They've sort of really figured us out. And again, you know, those those fields were, were so compromised by politics uh, under the communist era that they got fact-based somewhere along the line. And I'm wondering if you take that question to Rip Van Winkle. Uh, Also in light of the Chinese, especially in terms of just their technical prowess, the ability to hack, 20 years ago when Rip Van Winkle went to sleep, we weren't necessarily thinking that the Chinese were so good at this stuff. So how and when did they get really, really, really good at this kind of cyber warfare skill set? 
So two, uh, two questions in there we ought to go uh, unpack. For the Russians, um, they just put a lot of time and effort into figuring out what are the divisions, the schisms in American society that they can exploit. And when you went back and read the reports about what they did in 2016 and the reports that we wrote in the Times, we discovered that they actually sent a team of sort of young millennials who were working for the Internet Research Agency to come to the United States, kind of backpack through the country, figure out what were the big issues, whether it was abortion or gun control or Black Lives Matter, or they didn't really care what the issue was, as long as it was an opportunity to divide Americans. And then they went back and started putting together these advertisements that we saw in uh, 2016, or internet memes um, that were out there to go promote division. Right? They would they would organize a, a rally uh, in favor of Black Lives Matter uh, in Texas, and then organize a counter rally f- at the same time in hopes that it would create a conflict on the streets. Now they got to more subtle methods by 2020 once we were onto them and realized that the best thing to do was infect individual American minds with this so that the Americans would do your work for for you because they're covered by the First Amendment. On your China question, it's not just China. Think about North Korea, the least connected society on earth, but it's the North Koreans who in 2014 sent a team out to get inside Sony Pictures Entertainment, go into their computer system, spend a month lurking there, and figuring out how they were connected to the email system, the movie-making system, the archive, and then melt down about 70% of their computers, all because they did not like a movie called The Interview, a a really terrible movie. Um, Terrible movie. (laughs) Really bad movie, although I've I've been corrected on that by by some uh, um, college students, including a few in my own family. Um, uh, that uh, they didn't like because it imagined uh, it was a comedy about a, an effort to assassinate Kim Jong-un. But uh, their response was not to go blow up a facility in Los Angeles near the Sony Studios, which almost certainly would have resulted in something blowing up in Pyongyang because it would have seemed like an act of terrorism. Instead, they went in with a cyber weapon and melted down the hard drives. So, you know, by that time, the Chinese had already figured out very well how to get inside uh, computer systems, ill-protected computer systems, and steal all kinds of intellectual property, and steal along the way the files for 22 million Americans who have security clearances, very detailed files about... um, their health histories, their financial histories, their family histories, everybody they had a relationship with. You can imagine the utility of this for an intelligence uh, agency. David, in in just a few minutes, this podcast is going to turn into a debate uh, between two people who are going to be talking through the question of whether a company or an entity that is a victim of ransomware and they're stuck, their systems are locked and they're under threat of being locked forever or even more damage if they don't pay millions of dollars. Should they pay the millions of dollars? So that's going to be the debate. But I wanted to spend a minute or two with you again on ransomware and and ask you, what is the U.S. government's position on whether company, let's make it just private enterprise for the moment, on whether a private company that has the choice to pay or not pay should go ahead and pay the ransom? The U.S. government position, John, depends entirely on whether um, you're reading on the Internet on official U.S. government sites or you're listening carefully to government officials because the two don't line up. If you go on the FBI's website, they basically say the U.S. government strongly discourages ever paying ransomware. And there's good reason for that. If um, you pay the ransomware, you're just encouraging the criminal group to go uh, attack somebody else the next day. If they can collect $5 million from you, they ought to be able to collect $10 million from a bigger target than you tomorrow. 
And so if you're going to disrupt the ecosystem of ransomware, the theory is you should ban it entirely. And recently, uh, I asked um, Ann Neuberger, who's the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technologies, a newly created position during the um, Biden administration, uh, whether or not she believed that no private entity or even a city or town should pay ransomware. And she said, you know, I initially came into this job thinking that that was the obvious solution. But the more I've talked to people about it, the more I realized that's not really going to work. Because if a company believes that if they don't pay the ransomware, they don't get their data unlocked, they don't get their data back, they're going to go out of business, then one of two things is going to happen. Either they will go out of business or the payment of the ransomware is going to go underground. It's basically going to be an illicit transaction. The way some families very quietly pay the ransom to get fam beloved family members back, even though it's the official U.S. position, you should not pay terrorists ransom. Mm -hmm. And you mm -hmm. saw that in your time in the, in the Middle East. Um, so that's the debate underway. There's a second related issue, which is when the ransom is paid these days, it's almost always paid in cryptocurrencies because they're hard to trace. That's one of the reasons cryptocurrencies came into being is because they're hard to trace. So cryptocurrency has become for ransomware gangs what cash was what cash has long been for um, drug cartels, right? The untraceable way to get paid off. And so one big effort of the Biden administration right now is to try to put some transparency into cryptocurrency payments, um, in part so they could trace it back to the criminal group. The theory being that if you take away the cryptocurrency part of the transaction, the criminal groups are going to have no way to get paid and thus will be more hesitant uh, to do this. By the way, it's not only the cyber side of the House in the federal government that wants to trace cryptocurrency. So does the IRS. <laughs> exactly. David Sanger, your documentary, The Perfect Weapon, is streaming on HBO. It's Emmy nominated. As always, um, you, you shed so much light in a short period of time. I want to thank you so much for uh, responding to Rip Van Winkle and putting uh, people in the picture for the debate we're about to have. David, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, John. So, Jen and Michael, thanks so much for joining us on Intelligence Squared. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. It's great to be here. Yes, thank you for having us. So I, I want to point out that the two of you are going to be debating a specific topic, um, which we, we just began to cover uh, with David Sanger, and that's the issue of ransomware attacks and how to respond to them. But I, I first want to point out, actually, the two of you do have a lot of uh, shared positions. You're both, um, ba you're both basically crime fighters when it comes to ransomware. Um, you serve together on the ransomware task force, and uh, you're both you're both on the side of the good guys on this. I just want to make that clear. Um, but but you do have a disagreement on a specific issue regarding the paying of ransom by companies and other entities when they come under ransomware attack. And it, what what's stunning is how frequently these attacks are coming. And I saw Senator Gary Peters on CNN saying that more than $400 million has already been paid in ransoms in the past year, uh, paid through cryptocurrency. So it's happening. The paying is going on. The question is, should that payment be prevented by law? Should the payment of ransom in ransomware attacks be outlawed? And on that you do disagree. So I want to go first to you, um, Michael, your position on whether they should be banned, legally banned, the payment of ransomware attacks. What's your stake on that? I, well, I certainly think that the, the case for eventually prohibiting payments is pretty strong, that where we want to get to is a place where those payments can be prohibited because we've got to take the fuel out of what is driving the ransomware market. Um, and clearly, actually, you know, you raised that issue of 400 million. Um, actually, I don't think we know, really. I mean, that's probably the floor. Uh, there's probably even far more than that uh, being paid out. And that's actually part of the problem that we, we don't even have any information as to how many attacks are occurring, 
um, and how many, what percentage of companies that are attacked are paying, um, and then how much they're actually paying in total. We really actually don't have a good sense of that. But what's your argument for, you talked about feeding the fire with fuel. So develop that thought a little bit more. What's the, what's the dynamic here that you're trying to stop? Well, sure. So one of the things that has happened is the ransomware market has become incredibly lucrative for the bad guys. Um, it has become fairly easy to get into the ransomware business for reasons that we can go into. Um, and so they're clearly making a, a, just a ton of money at it. And so as a result, we've got to figure out ways to shut off that flow of money. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of tools that we need to use to, um, to stop that flow. Among them, uh, among the tools that we should use, I think, is the pro prohibition on payments. But I want to be clear that that's only one tool among a whole bunch that we need to use to actually shut off uh, and make ransomware not nearly as lucrative of a business to be in. Okay, so we understand that you are saying there are a range of tools, but that one of them should be the banning by law of payments for ransomware attacks, which which will be, for at least for the next few minutes, the point that we'll be discussing and, and, uh, and debating. So, Jen Ellis, what's your take on that, on, on making it against the law for companies under attack to pay to get out from under attack? Yeah, thank you. Um, and by the way, I appreciate you making it clear at the start that I am not representing the voice of the ransomware attackers out there um, who still want to be able to to get their payments. Um, I think, you know, the, the reality is Michael and I are not so very far apart in as much as I think everybody agrees that paying ransoms is suboptimal, right? You are, you're funding crime at the end of the day. Um, and I think most people understand that the more that we pay um, ransoms, the more attractive ransomware is as a, a potential revenue source. And so more people enter the market and we see more attacks. So I think, you know, there's, there's pretty broad agreement that not paying is a desirable outcome. The problem is that where we are today means that all of the cards are held by the attackers. So the, the existence of safe haven nations, uh, these are nations where they either can't or won't prosecute attackers. So there's very little repercussion or consequence for attackers. Um, as Michael mentioned, there's actually minimal technical difficulty. You can move into the market quite easily. You can pay other people to do it for you. Um, startup costs are minimal. Um, and, you know, everything is a tax surface these days. Everything's connected to the internet. Um, and so there's, there's so much potential of what to go after. And so, you know, right now, there's no real friction for attackers. So we have this principle that, hey, if we, if we say to people you can't pay, then eventually attackers will go and look for revenue elsewhere. And maybe that will happen. But the key word here is eventually. Before we get to the point where they do that, they will play a giant game of chicken with everybody because there's no reason for them not to. There's no risk for them. There's no cost. So they're going to play a game of chicken and they're going to focus their attention on organizations that are least able to withstand paying. So you're talking about essential services like healthcare, critical infrastructure. Um, and then you're also talking about small to medium businesses, you know, businesses that can't really afford to invest heavily in cybersecurity internally. And a single ransomware attack can see them close their doors for good. So in these cases, it's really hard for these organizations to withstand the pressure to pay. And if you have passed a law and said, you know, thou shalt not pay, then you end up with a situation where, you know, you have hospitals that are closed or you have fuel that isn't being delivered um, or you have small to medium businesses that are closing down. And in that situation, what you're likely to see is in some cases, some organizations will be tempted to make payments underground, which is very dangerous because now what you've done is you've put yourself firmly in the pocket of your attacker. You've demonstrated a willingness to pay and you've given them leverage over you. In other words, you can be blackmailed for having paid. Exactly. And we, ha we are seeing the emergence of um, double and triple extortion attacks whereby a ransomware attacker will take an initial action to an organization and say, hey, pay me to get access to your systems. And then afterwards will say, hey, but while I was there, I stole your information. And if you don't pay me more money, I'm going to go and leak it. Um, so we call that double extortion. And, and so they're already showing a tendency to look at 
secondary and tertiary ways of monetizing an attack. So you definitely don't want to put yourself in the pocket of your attacker. Okay. So Michael, let me take back to you some of what Jen is saying. Again, the two of you agree that it would be a great future if if the future functions in such a way that uh, cyber attackers, these criminals, know that they're not going to get paid because the law is in place and it's functioning. But two problems. Number one, there's going to be an interim period during which the first companies facing this could really, really be punished by the process. And the second one being that there would be unintended consequences of smaller companies being forced underground in, in, in other words, it would, it, would, it would become sort of a black market in ransom uh, paying and that companies would have to pay, would, would pay, um, and would then be breaking the law by paying and that that's its own kind of mess. And those sound like reasonable, practical scenarios. So what, what would be your response about navigating those? So Jen raises, and Jen and I have talked about this a lot, and, and I should say that she's absolutely right that um, we're, we're actually not so far apart on these issues. The, the two issues that she raises are absolutely, uh, absolutely correct. Um, and so therefore, I think that when you talk about, that's why I think actually talking about uh, a payment prohibition is like, okay, that's our easy button. Beep. You know, we're just going to hit the easy button and, and get rid of ransom payments. No, um, you actually have to embed that, um, that decision in a larger policy process. So in fact, to address the issues that, that Jen was raising, the government that, wants to put in place a prohibition has to be willing to support its companies during that game of chicken that she's talking about. And the government has to be willing to backstop and step in and provide assistance to help the the company actually recover and recover quickly uh, from that so that the attackers can't hold that over their heads. Um, I think for the, you know, if they do have that strong backstop, then they, companies don't want to pay. And in many ways, by putting in place a payment prohibition, um, it'll actually help them make the decision that they already want to make, which is to, to not pay. But you do have to give them the ability, the wherewithal to withstand those, uh, those assaults from the bad guys, particularly during uh, that transition period that Jen was talking about, because that is absolutely, uh, absolutely true. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll hear more from our debaters right after this. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. Let's get back to our debate. Jen, what, what about that? So, um, so Michael is saying that uh, a prohibition could be put in place with supporting backup from the government in such a way that the issues that you're concerned about could be addressed and we could potentially get through this transition period and also potentially work in a world in which even the smaller, more vulnerable companies would know that they wouldn't have to pay because they'd have backup from the U.S. government. You know, I love the idea of this. And it was one of the recommendations that the Ransomware Task Force made um, that I, you know, I wholeheartedly support. I think the challenge with it is that while it goes a long way to, to creating benefit, it how does it scale? You know, you can't provide a safety net for every company out there. I think, you know, where where do you create the boundary lines on it to say you will get help and you won't? And and who's left out in the cold in that model? The other thing that I think is really important to remember is that recovery takes a long time. So if you're an essential service provider and you have this safety net and because you're an essential service provider or critical infrastructure um, organization, the government is going to apply the safety net to you and, and will and will provide that support. Even still, the choice to, to go the recovery route, not um, the straight decryption route, is tough, right? It takes a really long time and your, your service may not be uh, provided during that time. And the other thing is, you know, recovery relies on you having certain preventative measures in place, or at least um, the best path to recovery relies on that. So things like backup um, and having your backups checked regularly. And so, you know, the government not only needs to provide the safety net, they also need to ensure that these organizations are taking the right preventative steps. All right, Michael, what's your response to some of what you just heard from Jen? I think at the root of it, I actually don't disagree that when if when you see when I when I lay out my case usually I always talk about the prohibition being the last thing you put in place mm-hmm. because you actually need to do a whole bunch of things including um, working with your critical infrastructure to raise their level of cybersecurity their preparedness their prevention status because actually even if we deal with the ransomware problem the criminals are not going to go away 
they're going to find something else to do. Um, and so we need to continue to invest in raising the level of cybersecurity across our critical infrastructure um, to not just deal with the ransomware problem, but to deal with the business email compromise problem and to deal with, you know, potential nation state problems. Um, so that's, those are wise investments to uh, begin with. But I think ultimately where I come down is that, you know, sanctioning, continuing to allow the, the you know, payments like this is a, in many ways, it's sort of effectively sort of uh, sanctioning the 21st century version of high seas piracy. Um, and it should really be an anathema to liberal democracies to, you know, continue supporting that. I just want to see, do, do we all agree that the sole motivation for the criminals involved in this is money, whereas a state actor might be interested in literally disrupting um, some system that they are able to attack, whether it's a hospital system or a, or a power plant, et cetera. Is, do we agree on that? Jen, I'll go to you first. Mm, I think that there's a very rich and complex ransomware ecosystem. It has uh -huh. become a, a true sort of marketplace, right? It's an, it's an industry. Um, and I think that within that, you see, you know, if you wind back the clock to, I think, 2017 with the WannaCry attack, the WannaCry attack is, is widely attributed to North Korea. Um, and so in that situation, you have to wonder was profit the primary motive um, or was it something a little bit more political? With a lot of these things, even though the primary motivation for the attacker themselves may be profit. Um, so I think it sort of varies. I think a lot of the nation states sort of hide among the, the criminals, right? I think for the criminals, the, the motivation is money. Um, they're in it for the money. And if ransomware wasn't making them money, they'd move to some other kind of cybercrime um, or some other type of criminal activity to continue to try to make money. I want to go to talk about the element of time in the attack scenario, because I think it potentially would challenge the, the notion of an effective ban in any case. So there are certain targets that ransomware attackers could set their sights on, like the most obvious being a hospital, where no matter what the government does, um, it, it's going to take time. If they decide not to pay a ransom and they decide to go through recovery, fix the problem from inside, it could take potentially days. And days is enough time for people in the hospital to start to die. And in that scenario, it, it, the, it would seem that the temptation to pay a ransom to save a life would be very, very high and perhaps even morally justifiable. I, I just want to take that to both of you. Um, I'll start with you, um, Michael. You know, the thing about it is that, and you're right, um, there could be a moral argument uh, for that, uh, for making the payment. Part of the problem is that even if you get the key from the, uh, the attacker, uh, it may not work very well. And it may still take you days um, to recover, uh, even using the, the key. Um, and I think that sort of undercuts the sort of the, some of the time pressure and some of the some of the other arguments behind that. Um, I mean, it's not surprising they're criminals. They're not always going to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Jen, do, do you agree with um, Michael on that point that the time element perhaps is is not a persuasive argument for, for making a moral case to save a life to pay a ransom? Um, I, uh, yes and no. Um, so I agree with everything Michael said from a sort of factual and accuracy point of view. Um, and I would point to HSE, which is the Irish... Um, health service, which was um, hit the same week as Colonial. It was a, a big old week in ransomware. So what the HSE attack um, highlighted is also the flip side of this, right? Which is that it may not necessarily be a moral issue about uh, paying the ransom or not, um, but there's a perception of a moral issue here. So when HSE got hit, hospitals across Ireland closed. And I remember very clearly that this happened just after the, the task force report had come out. And there was a lot of sort of public debate over, over the prohibition of, of payments. And I remember as we were debating it, somebody reached out to, to me via Twitter and said that they were a parent and their child was in hospital in Ireland awaiting cancer treatment. And they couldn't fathom how people could possibly have a debate over the concept of, of prohibiting payments, right? Like they're there, their child has cancer, is waiting treatment, the hospital is not, is not able to function. And they were just horrified. And they said, you know, they were actually at the point where they were looking at refinancing their house so that they could make the payment 
to the ransomware attackers. And I think like when you are talking about hospitals, which is the example you used, it, it isn't necessarily the case that paying the ransom will speed up the process. But there's a, a perception issue here where, you know, for most people, they they don't know the ins and outs and the nuance of it. What they see is there's a chance and there's an action that could be taken and that action's not being taken. And that's unfathomable for them. And so I think we do have to like have a moment where we remember the emotion that goes into this. And we remember that we're talking about real people's lives. And that's, it's very scary for them. And, and, and so I think we do have to think about, um, the how how we impact them even though we're being very pragmatic and very logical you know that isn't necessarily very comforting to them at that time yeah it just shows the kind of leverage that these criminals have absolutely 100 yeah, i understand that when you were on the task force together you were on this question of making ransom payments illegal much more on his side at the beginning. At the very beginning, yeah. So um, actually, like, it's a bit of a running joke amongst the task force because at the start, I was possibly one of the most vehement uh, people arguing that we should prohibit payments. Um, I was, and still am, like, completely horrified by the notion of funding organized crime. And I would frequently talk about the fact that, you know, experts say that organized criminal groups are also involved in human trafficking and child exploitation and that ransom payments can help fuel those activities. And that was really like truly like horrifying to me and still is. The problem is that the pragmatics of banning payments don't work today. And so as soon as I started to understand that piece, I started to shift my point of view on it. It sounds as though we, we see where the two of you stand on this, but you have both made the case that the ideal situation would be prevention and deterrence of these uh, criminal cyber attacks in the ransomware field. And I want to talk a little bit about that, as as promised. Um, you know, David Sanger brought up the, this discussion about potentially tracing the payments, you, making making cryptocurrency traceable. And, and, a, and a really interesting thing happened, we know, in the case of the Colonial Pipeline, that after the ransom payment was made, um, the U.S. The, actually was able to get some of the money back. They were Technically, they were able to trace it and recover some of it, which sounds a little bit promising. Um, at the same time, the whole selling point of cryptocurrency and the reason it's attractive to criminals is it's meant to be, it's designed to be anonymous. But I, I'd like to ask you both about what you think about that as a solution, part of the solution to this challenge. And um, uh, Michael, why don't you take that first? Sure. I mean, I think that when you when you look at why ransomware has become the problem that it has uh, evolved into, becoming a national security threat, an economic threat, a public health and safety threat, part of it is cryptocurrency, right? You, uh, if you wind the clock back, ransomware certainly existed prior to um, the emergence of these really big cryptocurrency uh, exchanges, but it's hard to imagine like somebody paying a $40 million ransom in gift cards, right? Like, um, so clearly the cryptocurrency exchanges are driving um, the, the ability of this market to be so big. And so I think that when you, when you look at that, you've got, to look, you've got to say, okay, looking at that payment system and looking for places where we can interdict the payments, because again, for the criminals, this is about the money, um, we have to include that in the, in the solution set. So are there ways for the cryptocurrency exchanges to uh, adopt some of the known best practices in the financial system, like know your customer, any money laundering laws, in a way that does not fundamentally undercut their value as an innovative, you know, financial instrument. Um, and I think that's where, you know, a lot of the work has to, has to do, but I do think it has to go. I do think some of these cryptocurrencies are going to have to decide, um, do they want to be part of the legitimate economy? Um, and if so, they may have to adopt some of these practices um, or they may have to choose to be sort of the cryptocurrency of the bad guys. Um, and I don't think a lot of them really want to to do that. Jen? Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't think I have a huge amount to to add, except that I'll say that, you know, cryptocurrencies in and of themselves are not bad and, and we should not vilify them. You know, they are a tool like any other tool that some people use wisely and other people exploit um, for malicious purposes. 
Um, and so this isn't about, you know, saying that crypto is bad or trying to crack down on crypto in some way. It's just trying to say that we have rules on how financial systems are used for a reason. Those rules need to be applied evenly and equally across financial systems. And at the moment, they're not being when it comes to cryptocurrency and it's creating an opportunity for, for uh, ransomware attackers to, to profit. Um, so we want to just make sure that we're fixing that that problem, that, that loophole, if you will. But I think even if we do, you know, it is important to remember that, as sort of, as Michael alluded, criminals have been finding out a way to get their money out of their activity for a long time. And I think cryptocurrency provides a very convenient avenue for them today. But I think if cryptocurrency goes away, then they will find another means. They won't, you know, they won't stop finding a way to get money out. Michael, you talked about there being a range of tools. So what else should we be thinking about beyond potentially making cryptocurrency somewhat traceable? Well, I think when you when you look at that, the ransomware task force report, it laid out a whole suite of things that we need to do. We've talked about the prevention and response side, but when you look at what needs to happen, Jen alluded to the idea of the safe havens. Um, these are countries like Russia that really turn a blind eye to and even encourage the cyber criminals to operate out of their territory. Um, and there needs to be a much higher diplomatic price paid for serving as a uh, safe haven. So we need to do a lot of work to reduce the attractiveness uh, to Russia and other countries like that to serve as a safe haven. We also need to put together very strong public uh, cooperative uh, activities between governments and uh, the private sector to really target and disrupt that business ecosystem. Um, as Jen mentioned, like ransomware is now a really big business and it's a very complex ecosystem with a lot of diversification and specialization. And we really need to be looking at how do we actively disrupt the different parts of that ecosystem? How do you disrupt the suppliers of access? Uh, to companies? How do you go after the developers um, and managers of the ransomware? Um, and that need, we really need to pick up the scope, scale, and cadence of those disruption activities so that the kinds of things that happened to TrickBot, the kinds of things that happened to NetWalker, where there were these big um, government actions to um, disrupt uh, and you know, seize domains and even eventually try to arrest people, although that's very, very hard, uh, because of the safe haven issue. Um, that needs to be happening on almost a weekly basis, for example, to really have the impact on the, on the criminal system. So we really need to make it a lot more costly to be in the business of doing ransomware. Um, and that is going to take a lot of time and effort, dedicated time and effort on the part of governments and the private sector working together to disrupt those kinds of activities. I just want to ask you, um, Eugene, and, and both of you actually, Michael, Colonial Pipeline paid $4.4 million in ransom earlier this summer. JBS, the, the beef processing plant in the U.S., paid $11 million. They wouldn't be paying unless they thought that was the better choice that they had. I mean, do, do, are, were those rational business decisions, do you think, under duress, but were they rational business decisions? Well, I mean, actually, I... I I've long said that you can see where from a microeconomic, from an individual business standpoint, it might well be a rational, albeit distasteful, uh, business decision for them uh, to make. When you look at the um, some of the options that we talked about, one of the things that we recommended in the ransomware task force was to require that if companies are going to pay uh, a ransom, that they be required to do a couple of things. And this is before you get to the idea of implementing a prohibition, but that if you're going to leave payments as a legal option, um, that one businesses be required to do some due diligence. Like, so have they actually done some analysis that says, in fact, yes, from our, from our perspective, from our point of view, from our bottom line, this actually makes makes economic sense, and we've done some analysis to to back that up. Oh, and by the way, if you actually are going to pay, then you have to report to a national government, in this case, the U.S. government. Uh, the fact that you're paying so that we actually begin to get a better picture of what's going on. One of the things that we learned during the work of the ransomware task force was that in some cases, not all, but in some cases when incident responders would go to work with a company that had been hit, 
they realized that the company hadn't fully worked through all of their options. So they would say, well, you know, have you looked at your, have you looked for shadow copies of your data to see if we can restore operations without paying? And the company would say, we're not sure what a shadow copy of data is. Have you checked with No More Ransom, this nonprofit uh, association that publishes uh, keys um, for free so that you can decrypt your data? Have you checked with them? No, we've never heard of that. So in other words, some of what we were saying is, okay, even if it's the right decision, you need to make sure that that's backed up by some you know, analysis so that you can show that that was the right decision for you in that micro micro sense. In fact, this is one of the issues I think, John, that is one of the biggest challenges in this area is that this is one of the places where I've seen the biggest divergence between what is in the long-term public interest and what might actually be in the short-term private interest. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this special edition of Agree to Disagree. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared. We'll see you next time. I want to thank you, our audience, for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared. I hope that you enjoyed it just as much as we did. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Clea Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff and leads production. And Shay O'Mara is our consulting producer. Jen Zelmer is our senior researcher. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. Exploreminnesota.com slash live.